Paul has argued in Romans 1 through 3 that both Jewish and non-Jewish people are in need of salvation because they are equally alienated from God because of the reality of sin. Paul has pointed out that there are three dimensions to the sin problem. First, there's captivity to sin with a capital S. Second, there's complicity in sin or the commission of sin as every person participates in acts of sin. And finally, there's a lack of glory. All three of these dimensions contribute to the sin problem that needs to be solved. And Paul has argued that the law cannot solve the sin problem. Our sin problem will not be taken care of through the Mosaic law. It can only happen through the salvation that's offered in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that solution can only be entered into through faith. So then Paul goes on to draw out three aspects of our salvation or of our reconciliation with God. He points out that Christ's atoning sacrifice produces redemption, which is released from captivity to sin. It produces justification, which is pardon from our guilt or forgiveness for our sin. And it also infuses or offers the gift of righteousification, this non-English word that we're using to try to get the concept across, where God transforms us morally and restores the glory that we lack as we participate in sin. God offers all of this in our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 4, the chapter we're considering this morning, Paul will show that full salvation, full reconciliation with God is available to all peoples, not just to Israel, not just to Jews, but to all people, and it's available through faith alone. Now, last week, we considered Romans 4, 1 through 8, where Paul demonstrated that righteousness can be received through faith by using the examples of Abraham and David. And we studied that fairly carefully, but I think we need to be asking, what does Paul mean by righteousness here? What are we receiving through faith? What's being credited for us? Well, we observe two of the dimensions of righteousness. You'll catch on a theme, the three dimensions of everything so far. I want to point out three dimensions of righteousness that Paul draws attention to in Romans 4. Two of them we considered last week. First, Paul has in mind the dimension of right standing before God. Through the sacrifice of Christ and our reception of it by faith, we stand in the right before God instead of standing in the wrong before God. Abraham's faith was credited for righteousness, for a right standing or a right relationship with God. But then second, Paul has in mind the dimension of forgiveness of sin. So David spoke of the blessing of having sin forgiven, of not having sin credited to the person, but instead of being, instead of being credited with, with sin, being credited with righteousness. That happens apart from works, only through faith. But there's a third dimension of righteousness that we've not yet considered, and this is actually the main point in Romans 4. This is the main aspect of righteousness that Paul is trying to talk about, and that is righteousness as covenantal family belonging. That's in the text we're considering this morning. I would suggests that this is the most overlooked aspect of righteousness in discussions of righteousness by faith. But here Paul wants to point out the dimension of covenantal family belonging to God and to his people that happens only through faith. Now this dimension is introduced in verse 1, but it's more fully considered in verses 9 through 25. 
His argument will be that to be righteous is to have a right standing with God, to have your sin forgiven, and to fully belong to God's covenantal family. In chapters 1 through 3, he emphasized that all people, Jews and non-Jews, need to be reconciled with God. And now he's just describing what that reconciliation looks like. Uh, There's no other qualification other than faith in Jesus Christ to fully belong, to fully receive the righteousness of God. Now, this first verse of chapter 1 I mentioned last week is really difficult to translate. I'm going with the footnoted alternative translation in the bottom of the Christian Standard Bible. So if you're using a Christian Standard Bible, you can look down and see the footnote. I really do think that this represents the best scholarship in the best translations here, even though it's a minority translation. So I'll read you the footnote. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul asks, What then shall we say? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? And later on, he'll contrast it with according to faith. So is Abraham our father according to flesh through genealogy, or is he our father according to our faith in God? He'll eventually answer, no, not according to flesh, only according to faith. But we'll have to work to get there. But the verse includes the main theme of the whole chapter, the gift of righteousness as covenant belonging through faith. So the overarching idea of the passage is this. No one can claim that they are righteous based on their ethnic heritage or based on law-keeping or based on circumcision or based on a genealogy that connects them to Abraham. That's what Paul means when he talks about our forefather according to the flesh. So even though at this time, you know, this is not our common experience, but at that time, many Jewish people who, who were Christians were saying that they had full standing with God primarily based on their genealogy. Paul wants to get rid of that and say it's only by faith. Ethnic identity is of no relevance to their relationship to God, which welcomes all non-Jews, all Gentiles, into that same right standing with God as well. So to bring it all together, sort of funneling into the text, in Romans 4, Paul launches an argument that non-Jewish Christians are fully included in the family of God on the basis of faith. As such, their fellow recipients with Jewish Christians of all of the promises of God that were made to Abraham. All of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant are fully available to Gentile Christians as well. That question, this question, this idea is especially relevant for the church at Rome because if you remember at the end of the letter in chapters 14 and 15, Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians are having great disagreements and they're not welcoming one another. They're, they're divided over whether or not non-Jewish Christians should maintain Jewish practices. And Paul is going to tell them the only thing that you need is faith in Christ. So chapter 4 is the theological foundation for Paul's conclusions in chapters 14 and 15 when he instructs these divided Christians, the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians, to come together, to welcome each other, to build each other up with the result that they live in harmony, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. And that's where we ought to end by the end of the sermon today where we look around, we see disagreement and we see difference, but we end glorifying God with one mind and with one voice. So we'll briefly consider the arguments Paul makes for this conclusion following the three major movements of the text. 
He starts by pointing out Abraham's pre-circumcision righteousness and faith. Then he moves to the relationship between the Abrahamic promises and the Abrahamic faith family. And then third, he'll talk about the availability of the covenant promises to the whole family through faith. Then finally, we'll look at Paul's conclusion where we see the nature of Abraham's faith and ours. So I recognize that we are covering a lot this morning, and that requires a bit more of you as, as we try to navigate this really challenging text. Also, I know that I'm going to say some things that, will, that some of you won't appreciate based on some of your theological presuppositions, and I just want to say I'd be happy to talk more about it, and I don't mean to offend you, but I'm just trying to give an explanation for a really challenging text that I think is faithful. So first, let's look at Abraham's pre-circumcision, righteousness, and faith in verses 9 through 12. Paul begins to answer the question of whether Abraham is the father of only those who share his genetics, according to the flesh, or those who share his faith, by pointing out that the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are not limited to those who are circumcised. So the promise, the blessing of righteousness is not limited to the circumcised. It's not just for Jews. It's for all who have faith. And he makes his case by pointing out that Abraham was not circumcised at the time that he was considered righteous. Abraham received the gracious gift of righteousness in all three of its dimensions prior to being circumcised. While circumcision is an important sign of the covenant and a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, it was not circumcision that secured his righteousness, It was faith alone. We can't consider circumcision more fully here, but I'll remind you that I preached a full sermon on circumcision not too long ago, where I argued that the need for physical circumcision is gone because as we're united to Christ, we enter into the circumcision of Christ. So if you have questions about that, I'd point you back to that sermon. But here, we need to pay attention to the timing of Abraham's circumcision. It came after he was already declared righteous. So Paul makes this timing observation, and then he goes on to reason that there was intentionality on God's part for delaying the command for circumcision until after declaring Abraham righteous. The reason God put things in that order, declared righteous, and then called to be circumcised, is that God was instituting a paradigm, a pattern in which righteousness is obtained as a gift to all who believe, regardless of circumcision or law adherence or anything else. In this way, Abraham is the father of all who have faith, regardless of whether they're circumcised, regardless of whether they have the law, regardless of whether they belong to Israel. Abraham is the father of us all. That's what I argued last week. We can sing Father Abraham in Sunday school, and it is right on. Now, in early Christianity, many Christians, many Jewish Christians were pressuring Gentile Christians to get circumcised and to obey the Torah, and Paul puts a stop to it. He puts a stop to it. Gentile Christians fully belong without any of that. In fact, if you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, that's everything that he's talking about there in a very pointed fashion. He does the same here, and in both cases, Paul puts a stop to the practice of circumcision and Torah observance, allowing for full belonging of all Christians, Jew or Gentile, without circumcision. 
Now, incidentally, it's this very logic of righteousness that precedes the seal or the sign of the covenant that I think is the strongest defense of the practice of baptism that we have here. So we, we practice believer's baptism where you're not baptized as an infant. You're baptized after you profess faith. You confess faith. And I think the, the strongest argument for our practice is the logic that we find here, that first there's a declaration of righteousness, and then comes the seal of righteousness in the sign of the covenant. Um, circumcision is like baptism. Baptism comes after our confession of faith, not to gain our righteousness or to secure it, but as the seal in the signifier of it. Abraham's circumcision was preceded by his response of faith to God's promises, and so too is baptism preceded by a response of faith to God's promises in Christ Jesus. So neither circumcision nor baptism is credited for righteousness, only faith. So by implication, here's the conclusion I want you to draw from that. It's not our baptism that is our fundamental marker of family belonging to God. It's our faith. That doesn't make baptism unimportant, but it makes it not ultimate. Our faith is what is ultimate. Now, having said that, I want to say that for those of us who practice baptism, believer's baptism, there is a really surprising application of this reality. And that is that we ought to relate to Christians who practice baptism differently than we do as our family members if they're marked by faith. So because baptism isn't ultimate, we can look at our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters and other kinds of Baptists as brothers and sisters because they are marked with faith. It's not their baptism that draws them into the family. It's their faith. So once again, this does not make baptism unimportant. I think baptism is really important, but it does de-elevate it. It's no longer ultimate. It's not the first marker of family belonging. So even as we affirm our convictions about baptism, we ought to guard against making our particular practice of, of baptism the bar for welcoming somebody as a member of the family of God. Instead, we need to recognize the priority of faith, or I would suggest we're in danger of doing the same thing that some of these Jewish Christians were doing and elevating circumcision as the definitive marker of faith. So back to the text. We need to connect all of this information to the question that Paul raised in verse one. What then shall we say? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? that is according to ethnic heritage or circumcision? The answer is no. God made him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham that he had while he was still uncircumcised. So in other words, a Jewish person who pursued Torah observance and the covenantal sign of circumcision apart from faith in Christ is not part of the family of God. So in that way, the family of God is limited. A Jewish person is not guaranteed family belonging. They must have faith. Similarly, and to its opposite side, the family of God is broadened to include Gentiles as long as they have the mark of faith. 
And that conclusion is consistent with the teaching of Jesus. That's especially clear in John 8, when he's telling these Jewish individuals who claim to be descended from Abraham and to have Abraham as their father, that they were not true children of Abraham because they didn't have faith in him. Instead, they proved themselves to have the devil as their father instead of Abraham as their father because of their lack of faith in Christ. The point is that the Abrahamic covenant was never about an ethnic connection to Abraham. It was always about faith in God. And if you read the Old Testament closely enough, you will see Gentiles time and time again who are fully included in the family of God and in the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant because of their faith. Think of Ruth, think of Rahab, think of so many others. It's always actually been about faith. It's only a distortion to say it's about your genealogy. We all become Abraham's offspring through faith. Now, for these early Christians, especially in places where Christianity was spread through the synagogue, um, like it was in Rome, this teaching was incredibly relevant. But the reality is, probably none of you have been urged to obey the Torah by a Jewish Christian. So you might be thinking this text is completely irrelevant in that regard. Now, I understand that, but I think there are a few ideas from the text that are really helpful. So I want to point a few out. First, although we may not be in a predominantly Jewish context where Christianity is spread through synagogues, um, and though we are in a predominantly not Jewish context, and in a country that really often is described as a Christian nation, whatever you think of that, most of us have grown up in a world where we feel like we are the dominant group when it comes to Christianity. Um, but in reality, when we look at redemptive history, we find that we're actually the natural outsiders to Christianity. We're the outsiders to God's redemptive work. And if we could transport ourselves back in time, we would not be the dominant Christian group. And it's Paul's clarifications in the New Testament, but especially in Galatians and here in Romans, that allows us to feel the full belonging and to stand on equal footing in the family of God with our Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. This text teaches us that neither citizenship in Israel nor citizenship in America guarantees God's blessing. Let me say that again because I know this is up for grabs a little bit in the world we live in. Neither citizenship in Israel nor citizenship in America guarantees God's blessing. Christianity has nothing to do with American identity or cultural heritage and everything to do with a faith connection to God. That's what Paul is trying to get across here. Second, when we recognize that true belonging to God's covenantal family is through faith, then we can set aside any other standard or requirement outside of a faith response to God for belonging with his family. We can recognize that it's not nationality, skin color, wealth, social status, or any other marker. It's only the mark of faith that brings us into the family of God. We need to keep this in mind because Often, when we're trying to figure out if we belong somewhere, when we enter into a room and try to figure out, do I fit in here? We look at, around at other people for certain markers that look like us or mirror us to show us that we belong there. 
So we look around at the style of clothing that they're wearing, or the stage of life that they're in, or the football team that they're cheering for, or the family rules that they have, or their philosophical approach to any issue. And we wonder, does it match up with mine? And if so, we think, I belong here. We look for markers of similarity that indicate belonging. But Paul is teaching us that when it comes to belonging in the family of God, there's only one marker of similarity that's needed. And that's the marker of faith. That's what brings us into unity and belonging with the family of God. No other marker. So what I'd want to say to you is that this is true both for the universal church and for the local church. And when you show up at Resurrection Church and you look around at people, if, when you're looking to figure out if you belong here, don't look for people who look like you or think the same way you do to know that you belong here or to believe that they belong here. Look only for the mark of faith that's demonstrated through a life of faithfulness to God. And when you encounter people who have external markers that are quite different from you, whether that's ethnically or in affinities or interests or whatever else, don't get hung up on those differences. Learn to appreciate them as this beautiful, diverse thing that God is doing by bringing together a family of difference that are bound together by the marker of faith. And it's faith alone that brings full family belonging. Third, and extrapolating from that, when we recognize that true belonging to God's covenantal family is through faith alone, then we ought to relate more charitably to other Christians, particularly those Christian groups and denominations that are working out their salvation differently than we are. When we talk about other Christians, especially when we're disagreeing with them, we should remember that they are part of the family too. I want to be especially clear about this, is we relate to brothers and sisters in other denominations and in other churches in the Twin Cities, we are relating to our family members. We're not relating to our enemies. I, I don't think that's the default setting for most of us. Most of us have a default setting where we like our way and everyone else, they've got to get on the highway, they're wrong. Um, because I think this is such a big issue in our contemporary Christianity, I want to push further into it by drawing from this guy, Kevin Van Hooser, as he encourages Christian charity in a book called Hearers and Doers. I'm going to read you a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's helpful for us. He shifts the metaphor from a family to a neighborhood when he writes, denominations are like houses. They are places where disciples can be sheltered and nurtured. There's nothing wrong with living in a house. It beats homelessness. So there's nothing wrong with belonging to denomination. As long as one practices hospitality to strangers and neighborliness to those who live next door. The point is that we should train disciples not only in our micro family traditions, but also to be good neighbors. Please note that each house each denomination, each local church is charged with representing the whole neighborhood. The local church's first responsibility is to be a royal priesthood that represents Christ, not a particular denomination. In a sense, the various denominations are like different ethnic groups. We're first and foremost human beings and only secondarily Scottish or French or Nigerian. 
Similarly, disciples are first and foremost followers of Christ, and only secondarily Calvinists or Wesleyans or Lutherans or Baptists. When we, now I'm talking, when we recognize that it is faith that brings us into the family of God, our other identity markers, whether denominational or doctrinal, are always secondary. For that reason, we should maintain the motto, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have firm convictions or distinct practices that are different than our brothers and sisters. And I'm not arguing for a shaping of the children of God into identical twins so everyone's uniform. I, I think we don't all need to be the same. That's not what I'm saying. But it is an argument to recognize the family resemblance marker that spans across the denominations and across the family. There's a family resemblance. And as with most families, no child looks exactly the same. But there's a family resemblance there. And for us, it's the family resemblance of faith. And if we can grab onto that, then in however many years, hopefully within the next 12 months, when we get to Romans 14 and 15, and we hear Paul instructing Jews and Gentiles who look and act and even worship quite differently, when, he hears, when we hear them, surprisingly not telling them to market themselves as church plants and to go their separate ways and to do their own thing so they can all look alike and all be happy in their uniformity, when he instead calls them to welcome one another, to offer belonging, to come together in unity, and to worship in one mind, in one voice, glorifying God is the one family of God. When we hear that, we'll be ready for it if we can affirm the, the gospel reality of Romans 4. If you are unwilling to say that faith is the only marker for belonging in the family of God, if you're unwilling to accept that gospel truth, then you won't be able to obey Romans 14 and 15. And that would be the case for Paul's hearers. So I, I'm being a little bit more emphatic about this than I am about some other things, because I think this is a key chapter in the whole of Romans. It's key to the gospel. And if we miss that, then we miss a major portion of the gospel. All right. So righteousness is covenant belonging demonstrated through Abraham's pre-circumcision, righteousness and faith. If you're wondering, that was the longest section of the sermon. So I'll move faster from here, but it's important groundwork. We have to grab onto this, and it's so contrary to our normal thinking. Um, Abraham's faith family and their inheritance. So now that Paul has established that both Jew and Gentile have, who have faith in God are included in the Abrahamic family, another question is raised. Well, to what extent do non-Jewish faith people belong? Do they fully belong, or are they like the redheaded stepchild who's kind of added into the family? Paul's going to argue that they fully belong, and as such, when it comes to the inheritance, they're fully written into the will. They get all of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Not a single promise is outside of their reach. This question was relevant because of the less than equal standing of non-Jewish Christians among Jewish Christians. But I want to tell you that it's also relevant today because there are popular systems of theology that suggest that non-Jewish Christians 
do belong to God's covenant people, but only partially, only in a spiritual sense. So there are some systems of theology that suggest the promises that God made to Abraham can be enjoyed at a spiritual level only, but will be enjoyed only by Jewish Christians at a physical level. I want to propose that Romans 4, in Paul's argument here, leads us to the conclusion that all of Abraham's family members, all who are marked by faith, are included in all of the promises. This is because it's only those family members who have faith that are true family members. So, there is no such thing as a spiritual heavenly people of God that are the Gentile Christians and a physical people of God that are the Jewish Christians. There's only one people of God, Jew and Gentile, marked out by faith. This conclusion becomes quite clear in the way that Paul will talk about Gentiles fully included in the Abrahamic promises. Now, for some of you, this may have gone exactly over your head and you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. You'll be equipped for it if you ever encounter it. But Paul is saying there's only one people of God, they're marked by faith, and they receive all of the promises. One of the ways that he does this is by drawing attention to the universalization of all of the promises offered to Abraham. If you remember in Genesis, Abraham is, offered, is promised a, a multi-ethnic family. He's promised land and he's promised blessing. All of these belong to God's family. Paul will show that this is universalized in verse 13 when he talks about, when he expands the land promise to include not just a parcel in Canaan, but the whole earth. So this is what Paul gets at in verse 13 when he writes that the promise to Abraham and to his descendants is that he would inherit the world. Paul argues that the land promise was not limited to the land of Canaan, but it included the whole earth. So track with the logic here. The basic logic of the land promise was always that the land of Canaan would serve as a geographic territory for God's kingdom. So what we call the Holy Land would be a sacred place where God's presence would dwell and where God's anointed king would reign over God's covenantal people. But now in Christ, the kingdom of God is going to expand across the entire globe, not limited to the land of Canaan, because God's presence will cover the entire earth and God's anointed King Jesus will reign over all peoples. And unlike the ancient kingdom of God called Israel, the new creation kingdom of God will include all nations. It will include all those who have faith in Christ Jesus. In this way, neither geography nor genealogy will limit the boundaries of the promised land. That's what Paul is getting at here. And as Paul will argue more pointedly in Romans 8, God is bringing about an entirely new creation, not simply a parcel of land. The promised land, then, was only ever a type, a shadow of the new creation, which is to come. And in Christ, the whole earth will be renewed, and it will become the dwelling place for God and his people. Now, I sometimes read of people who are really longing for the current state of Israel to rebuild the temple, to re-engage in Jewish practices, and to reclaim the boundaries of the promised land articulated in the Old Testament, and to exercise imperial authority over the surrounding nations. And, and that is wrongly connected to a political 
way of operating. I want to suggest that that is not what Paul would want from us. That's not Paul's vision. That would be going back in time. Paul doesn't go back in time to restore the kingdom of Israel. He goes forward in redemptive history to talk about the full kingdom of God. In the progression of redemptive history, the temple was just a type. The land was just a type of the new creation, and Israel was just a type of the multi-ethnic global kingdom of God. And now these types have found their fulfillment in Christ, in the church. And these promises will be fully realized in the new creation that will be filled with the presence of God and the flourishing and the blessing of God's people under his reign. So nowhere in the New Testament is there a reference to the limited boundaries of Canaan. That's old news. Everywhere, though, from Jesus' beatitudes in which the meek are said to inherit the earth to Paul's teaching in Rome about the promise to Abraham to inherit the world to the picture at the end of Revelation where the whole earth is filled with the people in the glory of God, there is the fulfillment of the type. There's the new creation. And at that time, there will be no glory lack. There will only be justified, righteousified, redeemed people fully reconciled with God, made up of nations across the globe. That's the hope for every Jew and for every non-Jew. And the only hope is in King Jesus, who through the Holy Spirit is bringing this to pass. Now, Paul punctuates this observation by noting that the land and offspring promises given to Abraham are received through the promise and through faith, not the law. So there is no reason for any state of Israel ever to reinstate the old covenant law. That's done away with. That only leads to death. That only reveals sin. If that's the case, then the promise is nullified. So no one should want to see the Mosaic law reinstated, whether it's in Israel or in America or anywhere else. The Old Testament law will nullify the promise. And we all want the promise. So we don't reinstate the law. Instead, we enter by faith into the promise. Inheriting the promises will take place only through faith. Anything else will nullify the promise. Third, Paul then moves on after laying that foundation, showing the universalization of the promise by pointing to Abraham's fatherhood of all faith people. So he's driving the argument home as he answers the question, is Abraham our father according to the flesh or according to faith? His answer will be clearly that it's by faith alone. Here Paul gives the short answer. Abraham is the father of many nations. He is the father of us all, Jew and non-Jew. More than that, both Jews and non-Jews are full members of the Abrahamic covenant and receive an as an inheritance the full promises to Abraham. Ultimately, these promises are secured through Christ in Christ alone. So as we read verses 16 and 17, we have the answer. Faith alone is what draws us into the family and gives us the promises, nothing else. As such, membership in the Christian communion takes, basis, takes place on the basis of faith alone as well. No one marked by faith is excluded. And as a local assembly, as we look around and as people walk into our doors, we need to consider how we can become a welcoming church to all those who are marked by faith. 
and how for those who are not yet marked by faith, we can offer them the welcome by giving them the good news of the gospel and calling them to respond by faith alone. That was short, point number four, Abraham's faith and ours. Paul then concludes this section by drawing a connection between Abraham's faith and the Christian's faith. He does so by pointing out parallels between Abraham's belief in God's promise relating to the birth of his son Isaac in his old age and God's promises relating to Jesus Christ. So in verse 21, Paul reminds his readers about Abraham's faith. Um, This is an elderly, childless couple who've been promised that they'll have offspring. Paul describes Abraham as considering his own body dead and considering Sarah's womb as dead. There was no chance in the world that they were going to have more children. So they needed a God who had power over death. They needed a resurrection event for God's promises to take place. For there to be a family, a family more numerable than the stars, they would need a God who could call things into existence that don't yet exist. Death would need it to be defeated. A resurrection would need to take place. And then later, After that happened, after Isaac was born and God called on Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, once again, Abraham was called to the same kind of faith, faith in a God who could raise someone from the dead and faith in a God who could call into existence things that do not yet exist. In this time in Genesis 22, a text we refer to as the Akedah, God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And in human thinking, if Abraham did, if Abraham obeyed, the promises would be nullified. There would be no way to get the promises. But he needed faith thinking. He needed belief that God would raise Isaac from the dead after he sacrificed him. And Abraham had just that kind of faith. He believed that God would raise Isaac up from the dead. Now, if Paul isn't making this idea up. Paul isn't being novel. Um, In another biblical book, Hebrews, that author makes the same point. This is how he describes the faith act of Abraham in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able to even raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. So Paul lays out in Romans 4 um, that Abraham did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but instead was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do. And more specifically in verse 17, he believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that did not exist. That's the God in whom Abraham believed, and that's the kind of faith Abraham had. And Paul wants to point out that we must believe in the same God, and we must have the exact same kind of faith. These things were not written just for Abraham, but also for us. Because we believe in the same God, we have a life-creating, resurrecting God who shows that he makes good on his promises. He did so in showing he made good on his promises to Abraham, and he has done so even more when he proved his power to bring life from the dead in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. 
He did so. He proved that he can call things into existence that did not exist by creating a multi-ethnic family for Abraham. We share faith in the same God that Abraham believed in. We share in the same exact faith. We believe in the God who credits faith for righteousness. And we believe that we can have righteousness in him alone. In these final verses, Paul brings the section of the letter to a close by drawing on the same exact concepts concepts that he did when he opened the letter declaring the gospel of God. There he wrote that Jesus Christ is the son of God. According to his human genealogy, he's a son of David. But according to the resurrection, he's the son of God in power. In the resurrection, God declared that Jesus really is his son in whom he's well pleased. And by offering that same resurrection to us, God affirms that we too are his children and that he's pleased in us as well. Now, of course, this section raises a lot of other questions. And Paul will hit those in Romans 5 through 8 and again in Romans 9 through 11. But we should be asking some questions too as we examine this text. Do we all share in Abraham's faith? Are you responding in faith to the promises of God, to the God who raises the dead, to the God who handed Jesus over for our trespasses and raised him for our justification? Are you living, are you learning to live as part of the one family of God along with all others who share the same faith and hope that we do? For those who have responded to God's work in Christ with faith, he credits to them righteousness in all of its dimensions, in right standing with God, in forgiveness of sin, and in full covenantal family belonging. So let's consider this great salvation and this gift of righteousness that's offered in Christ as we sing of our one unity in the spirit, our one hope in God that's held together by the family bond of peace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Christ who makes all of this possible, who gives us the gift of righteousness in each dimension. We're grateful for our right standing, for the forgiveness that we have in the full family belonging that you've granted to us. Would you now cause us to live as the one family of God and to rest in Christ who offers this to us? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.